The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. This is Squawk Box with Steve, Karen and myself, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines. Asian markets are lower after the long labour weekend with Chinese oil and airline stocks dragging the Hang Seng down and US-China tensions weighing on sentiment. US officials reportedly believe China covered up the coronavirus outbreak to hoard medical supplies, while President Trump used a virtual town hall to pile blame on Beijing as he says the American death toll could hit 100,000. This should never have happened. This virus should not have spread all over the world. They should have put it out. They should have let us and other people in other countries go in and put it out. Warren Buffett sells all airline positions as the billionaire investors tell shareholders he doesn't see anything attractive in the market despite the recent rout in stocks. Swiss drug maker Roche wins FDA approval to provide antibody tests vowing to double production over coming months. We'll be speaking to the CEO Severin Schwan and a first on CNBC. And the UK looks set to overtake Italy as Europe's worst hit country, with the death toll nearing 29,000. This as Rome looks to ease restrictions, whilst the British government plans to outline its easing roadmap this week. Let's circle back to that headline story. President Trump ratcheting up pressure on China over its handling of the pandemic, warning he may impose fresh tariffs on the country. The president has accused Beijing of covering up the outbreak without providing any evidence. But speaking in a virtual Fox News town hall, the president promised a, quote, conclusive report by the U.S. Intelligence Committee. President Trump also explained why he would consider re- starting the trade war with fresh levies. It's the ultimate punishment, I will tell you that. I don't you like, had experts look I don't at... Like, again, I don't like to tell you what I'm... Because, you know, we're all playing a very complicated game of chess or poker. Name whatever you want to name. But it's not checkers, that I can tell you. We have a very complicated game going. Our country was being ripped off by every nation in the world. And now we have made unbelievable strides. Unfortunately, then we get hit by this whole situation. But we have done so well. We have taken in so much money going before the virus. China had the worst year they had in 67 years. That's the reason. And I'm not happy about that. But what it does is it says they were taking us for a ride. Well, U.S. officials reportedly believe China covered up the full extent of the outbreak in a bid to hoard medical supplies. According to a Department of Homeland Security intelligence report seen by the Associated Press, Beijing concealed the true contagiousness of the disease while moving to increase imports and cut exports of key equipment in early January. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo echoed his boss's message 
Vucic in a weekend interview saying there is, quote, enormous evidence the virus originated in a Chinese lab. Speaking to ABC News on Sunday, he also said China has been responsible for the spread of the disease or of diseases in the past and must be held accountable for the pandemic that originated in that country. China has a history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the first times that we've had a world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab. And so while uh, the intelligence community continues to do its work, they should continue to do that and verify so that we are certain. I can tell you that there is a significant amount of evidence that this came from that laboratory in Wuhan. Uh, so we've come a long way, haven't we, from those late March lows. And I guess uh, you could argue that the market having a pause for thought as it contemplates valuation levels given the economic data. Or perhaps is this a reflection on the fact that we don't seem to be coming out of this period of uh, increased infection rates quite as fast as the market was hoping. Whatever you choose, it's clear that as we closed out the session... At the end of last week, the markets took a turn for the worse, if you are long markets at this point. And you can see we were down quite strongly across the board here, off 2.5% on the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ, which has been one of the more resilient sectors for the markets of late, off over 3%. In terms of the oil story, let us just roll the board for you and take a look. Um, again, um, a little uh, um, a reflection on perhaps the fact that demand continues to crater from here. And there was some fresh news around supply, I think, particularly with the Russians indicating that even as we talk about supply constraints, there continues to be more oil finding its way onto the markets. And as you look across these key American oil companies, companies you, you can see where the pain was felt strongest here. ExxonMobil uh, down over 7% uh, and some uh, questions there about the direction of travel in terms of management uh, and how um, the company is going to be led going forward. Let's have a look at the um, WTI and the Brent quotes then just to give you a sense of how we're set up as we come into the trading day today. WTI, Brent, well we're still some way away from those lows but as you can see we've edged back from that $20 a barrel mark that we got to late last week. And the Brent quote, uh, we are off modestly here, nearly 1% at $26.20. Well, what do the uh, futures look like? Um, let's just show you uh, what the US futures are telling us. And it looks like we will pick up that legacy out at the end of last week. And as we saw the US futures o open overnight, it was clear that we were going to see a Dow uh, indicated off more than 200 points to the start of the session. The European futures don't have us down quite so badly, but we'll keep an eye on this. Um, obviously, uh, there were some markets that sat out the session on Friday who may play a, a little bit of catch-up. So um, the brokers are doing their best to come up with some numbers here, but that's the early call as far as the European Open is concerned. Um, Asia has been weak, 
Um, I think uh, the Asian markets in particular dislike the narrative that we're now hearing out of Washington with the finger being pointed firmly at Beijing over what it did or did not do around coronavirus as it became clear that this was potentially a pandemic way back in late December, January and then February. Let's uh, pick up with uh, Emily who's been following the action in the Hong Kong market and of course a reminder the Chinese and Japanese markets closed today. Emily, good morning. Hi there, Jeff. And we are looking at steep losses for the Hong Kong market and the resumption of trade for the afternoon, close to 1,000 points in the red, uh, with the Hang Seng Index off more than 3.5%. This is the market is playing catch-up today. Uh, the Hong Kong market was closed last Thursday and Friday for public holidays. Uh, the Chinese markets, as we're not showing you, is closed for the Labor Day holiday, only reopening on Wednesday. The HSI at 23,674. And we're also looking at the H-share index, which is down down more than 400 points. Uh, but a couple of sectors that I do want to bring to your attention. First, pull up the China oil majors. In particular, PetroChina shares down more than 9%. Uh, this is on the back of their latest quarterly numbers. The three big oil majors all out with numbers. Sinoc and Sinopec, I should say Sinopec and PetroChina, both reporting losses for the first quarter of the year. Uh, we got Sinoc reporting a profitability, uh, but they cut their capital expenditure and they did not disclose their full year, uh, full quarterly results in the earnings call. Uh, so quite a bit of weakness coming through here. We got PetroChina shares down 9.3%, Sinook off more than 7%. Quite a bit of weakness also coming through from the gaming sector. Uh, April GGR gross gaming revenues down almost 97% on year to 94.4 million. This was largely driven by the new travel restrictions in place that have been in place uh, in the territory there. They only had about a couple hundred visitors for the entire month versus over 100,000 in the year ago period. So that's how this is playing out in the market here. Uh, Melco International Development down 5.6%. Win Macau shares off more than 5%. I want to bring your attention to the GDP figure that we are waiting on out of Hong Kong today for the first quarter of this year. It'll come through in just over three hours from now after the market close. The financial secretary here, Paul Chen, already saying that the economy could shrink between 4 and 7% this year. The recession would be worse than the global financial financial crisis, he says, and the Asian financial crisis, the threat of the worst recession ever. Uh, the pandemic is having a big impact on the economy, which is more serious and long-lasting. The economic performance will be worse than expected. So at the end of last year, we had 2019 GDP down 1.2 percent. Uh, we got the Wall Street Journal calling for Hong Kong's GDP in the first quarter to contract by more than 5 percent. We'll get that reading to come through after the market close. This, of course, has to do with the closure of all the retail. Uh, a lot of the retail and uh, restaurants and some of the businesses due to the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, we got an improving situation here in Hong Kong. No new confirmed cases in the last two days. We've had no local transmission for the last two weeks. So the expectation is that the government is going to be relaxing some of these measures before they expire uh, come on Thursday. So that's like four people to a, a table at a restaurant, Jeff. And the expectation is going to be increased to eight. 
cake. So for me, family of five, we don't have to be split into two tables anymore. So that's good news. Uh, that, oh, that may be good news or bad news, depending on how you feel about your children, Emily, I would guess. Uh, but we'll, um, we'll take it uh, <laughs> as you say. It, it is good news that you can all sit together. Emily Tan with us from Hong Kong. And it was a very interesting uh, write-up uh, of a story in the Straits Times suggesting mainland Chinese buyers did not buy any commercial property at all in Hong Kong in the first quarter. I think it was uh, reported to the CBRE uh, who tracked these things. Uh, let's take the break. Coming up on the programme, Berkshire Hathaway sells its stakes in America's biggest airlines as Chairman Warren Buffett warns of gloomy times ahead for the sector. We'll have more on that story. Plus, uh, for more on the coronavirus blame game and how it's weighing on market sentiment, you can always catch up with the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back, everybody. Berkshire Hathaway has sold its stakes in America's four largest airlines as Chairman Warren Buffett warned the world had changed for the industry due to the virus lockdowns. He got rid of positions in United, American, Southwest and Delta, a combined investment worth more than $4 billion. Speaking at the company's closely watched AGM, Buffett defended the decision, saying airlines have been hit hard by travel restrictions during the pandemic. He added, Berkshire does not trim positions or take half measures. This after Berkshire Hathaway posted a record $49.7 billion loss in the first quarter, citing the impact from a slump in global stocks due to the outbreak. The holding company's cash pile grew to a high of $137 billion during the period as it continued to shy away from major acquisitions. The company instead moved much of its cash reserve into U.S. Treasuries while also limiting spending on stocks and share buybacks. Well, let's bring Karen and Steve into this conversation and let's spend a little bit of time on this, guys, because I think Warren Buffett is uh, the ultimate big fish and everybody looks to see where Warren goes to see whether it's a good idea for you to go there as well. And I think interesting messaging here. We all sat around the desk back in 07, 08 and watched Warren Buffett buy a bit of Goldman Sachs, buy into Mars, buy Dow Chemical... Uh, he, he just uh, soaked up a, a number of positions. Bank of America, that was another one. And here we are with Warren Buffett saying, I'm not so sure I see anything I like at these valuations, and I certainly don't want to be in airlines. How important is this message, do we think, Steve? I think there are so many things coming out here. And look, Jeff, you and I have both read the way. I think Karen probably has as well. So we know a little bit about how he and Charlie Munger think as well. So there's lots of things to say. One, your comparison with 2007, 2008 and now. Well, then he 
almost appeared to be part of an institutional bailout, didn't he? And he was saying, uh, I think as early as this, late as this weekend, he said, look, I didn't need to this time. The Fed acted very quickly as well. So I didn't need to be part of some form of institutional support mechanism for the market as well. But, but a couple of things. One, and here's a lesson for every single one of our viewers, for all of us out there is, and, and it's one of the oldest adages in the market, don't fall in love with your trades. Very often people have a trade. They think this is the best trade since sliced bread. Uh, it goes wrong and then they double up or they think it will go right. Well, Warren Buffett is just showing all of us that even at his advanced years of investing, he still knows that if, you, if a trade goes wrong or the facts change, just get out. I mean, he's taken a massive hit, $50 billion in the quarter as well. If the trade doesn't work, and in this case, we're talking about airlines, get out. The next point I'd like to say as well is that Warren Buffett is invested. Now, worryingly, he can't find anything to do with $137 billion apart from put it in treasuries. But the fact of the matter is we must remember there is still a, a large part of $760 billion still invested in the market. So Warren Buffett does own a vast amount of the market, the likes of Apple, I think, Bank of America, an insurer, a chocolate company. So there are a lot of companies across the board that Warren Buffett does own. It's just that I think the most telling thing is not that he's got out of his airlines. I think that's just very, very sensible old hand in the market. It's the fact that he can't find anything to do with $137 billion. That's the biggest message for me. I'll pick up on both those points, Steve. I think it gives us a few answers, too, as to who was selling in March. It felt like there was terrific amount of volume going through the markets, just extraordinary levels. And it didn't feel as though it was just machine driven, that there were some big investors selling, too. And of course, what we're hearing, that Warren Buffett was selling the airlines. So clearly, there was a lot of liquidation taking place in positions. The other point, though, if you're sitting on $137 billion and you're, you're looking to buy stocks on the cheap, the Warren Buffett didn't think that stocks were cheap in March, necessarily, or maybe he was concerned about the backlash to be seen to be buying up some of these beaten up assets as everybody else was effectively bleeding on the street. So I think a note of caution about what that tells us about the March lows, because those who bought then probably feel as though they had this golden opportunity. They called the market bottom were pretty clever as we move forward. But perhaps it suggests that there's more to come, that there's more economic certainty. The second, the third round effects of the virus might be pretty severe. And if you think if we just rewind right back to the beginning, nobody quite called the second or third round effects from this virus when it first broke out in China. They didn't see the impact across Europe, the United States, the lockdowns, the economic hit that would uh, take place. So why do we have any faith that the market has arrived this time round that they're, they're calling the second, third round economic effects down the track, Jeff? Yeah, and I want to pick up on that point, Karen, because I think that's terrific. And you've led us neatly into what the new existential risk is for the market at this point. And I don't know um, who Warren Buffett sits down and has lunch with or what private calls he takes, but I dang well know that he talks to a lot of the people in the administration who have a pretty good idea about the uh, political direction that this administration is now taking. And it seems to me President Trump is doubling down here on the rhetoric against China, the claims that the intelligence service knows that information was suppressed early on. I, I do think raises some questions about the risks now involved with participating in some of these trades. And uh, maybe Warren Buffett isn't talking about the politics, he's talking about the economics, but he certainly understands when the wind changes direction, you take note of that. And I do wonder, as we sit here this morning and we have maybe two or three top stories here that all relate on pointing the finger at China for what may or may not have been done quickly enough when they recognised the uh, 
risk around this virus. This is now moving on the conversation. And the one thing, you know, to pick up your point, Steve, about the difference between 07, 08 and where we are now, there did seem to be a sense of coordination among uh, multinational bodies and around fiscal and monetary stimulus. At the moment, we seem to have an every man for himself type approach. And I wonder if Trump sees his route back to the White House, uh, if he sees that route back to the White House as being just cranking up further pressure on China and perhaps more trade sanctions, then ultimately the environment is going to deteriorate from risk on, for risk on, Steve. Look, I think, I, think, I think the coronavirus has been a catalyst and has sped up a lot of things, but it didn't invent protectionism and it certainly didn't invent populism as well. And it's those twins, of course, which I think the president is leaning on to potentially get himself re-elected as well. Let's face it. I mean, when did we first have a conversation with Pippa Malmgren, whose father, of course, was in a, a previous administration in the 70s as well, Howard Malmgren, uh, about onshoring? And I'm pretty sure that was a good seven or eight years ago where Pippa was telling us, about onshoring that was going on in the US way before President Trump was elected as well. And you twin that with the populism, which is still rife as well. And your, react, your point about um, the coordinated reaction is spot on. I and mean, funnily enough, it, uh, Boris Johnson today is going to chair a video conference internationally where he's looking for coordinated action on a vaccine, of course. And we'll talk more about that uh, and about other tests and what have you a little bit later on with Roche. But the fact of the matter is he's calling for a coordinated human Humanity versus the virus reaction, which maybe he'll get on the vaccine front, but on other fronts, whether it's economically as well, this is the same government which is sticking to its Brexit timeline as well. So I would suggest that protectionism and populism are still rife, and a lot of politicians, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's our own UK government on Brexit, or whether it's the president seeking re-election, they will rely on that continually. And as I say, I think COVID-19 has just been an agent of that rather than the cause. Whether you're populist or not, it's also about answers at this stage. You've seen huge economic damage, lives lost. I think a lot of people want answers. And there's been enough suggestion around the Wuhan lab in China, whether the virus originated there, whether it passed through the lab or whether it was not uh, anywhere near the lab at all. I think the population's demanding answers. And it might be, you know, well, good to offer the United States some benefit of the doubt around that protectionism theory. But in the past, what we've seen, of course, is trade war that's been waged. So it's a little bit hard to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I, I think... The question is how China responds. And you've already seen other countries, not just the United States, demanding some sort of inquiry, some sort of investigation, collaboration from Europe as well, that this doesn't happen again. The question is how China adopts some of those measures, whether it does throw open the doors for some clarity so we can all move forward, or whether we see you know, the West against China, other nations against China at the end of this phase, Jeff. Yeah, it's a little bit early doors, isn't it? I mean, I sat down with Ursula von der Leyen, what, uh, last week? I mean, it seems like a, a million years ago, but it was only uh, last middle of last week. And I uh, put that question to her about the necessity of some uh, broader investigation into the origin of this disease. And she threw the European hat into the ring very clearly and added to those voices in the United States and Australia saying it is necessary for us to look at the origin and the causes and then we may get to some sense of how to cope with similar events like this going forward. But I think there is a phasing, a timing issue here, isn't there? Um, yes, we need to get to this at some, some stage, but do we need to do this now? Do we not need to deal with 
the current infection rate in every country and address the crisis in PPE provision where it exists and just make sure we have this thing under control before we then start to review the information and ask, could it have been dealt with in a more sophisticated way? I don't know. Just I'll throw the thoughts out there. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous to think that there will be a global backlash against China over the long term. Let's face it, uh, is Europe, which was basically opening its arms to China only a few months ago, desperate for those investments as well, desperate for those collaborations, the UK, uh, Germany, all these nations, Italy, as we know, is a case in point as well, all desperate to buy into the Asian and emerging market growth strategy at a time when we're looking at huge negative growth rates. I think if there is a sequencing of events, it will be to get the economy back on track track as well. Whether it came out of a laboratory, as some of the, the theorists are talking about, or whether it came out of a, uh, a wet foods market, well, it's almost irrelevant to getting the economy back on track. To start a global trade war uh, and a global huge move to protectionism on the back of what we're seeing as one of the, the worst economic performances of the last hundred years plus, it would be nonsensical from a rail politique point of view to do so. So yes, there'll be a lot of finger pointing, but, but again, what will it solve? It won't get the economy back on track. The idea is to get the economy back on track and maybe at some stage later in the future you can think about how your economic model looks as well. But I I can't think that's top of anybody's priority apart from, as I say, if you are trying to get elected in the United States. Terrific. We'll come back to the conversation, guys. Thank you. Let's move on. The aviation industry may lose hundreds of billions of dollars in 2020 with the impact extending far beyond this year. NBC's Carl Nassman has the report around the world look a lot like this one here in Berlin, quiet and deserted. The scene inside the terminals is similar as well, with most shops and restaurants closed and only a handful of arrivals and departures each day. The statistics, they bear that out as well. Air travel in many cases down around 90 percent and economically a big hit. The industry as a whole is set to lose about $300 billion in revenues just this year alone alone in crisis. So what will it take to get airplanes back in the skies again? Well, it's likely to be the biggest change in air travel since 9-11. We're talking about changes from takeoff to touchdown. And we're already seeing those sorts of changes being announced by major airlines. American, United, Delta, and JetBlue all saying that they will soon require face masks for passengers while they are on board the plane. Aviation experts, though, say that is likely just the first step. We may see things like health screenings before you even get on board. That could mean something like a temperature check or even a blood test. And planes, they may see a change as well. That dreaded middle seat could soon be a thing of the past. Carl Nassman, NBC News, Berlin. Well, Lufthansa has told its staff rescue talks with the German government will conclude soon, but added the airline is also looking at alternative measures as a precaution. In a letter seen by Reuters, CEO Carsten Spohr said, quote, we remain convinced that we will not have to fall back 
back on the alternatives given the talks with Berlin. The flag carrier is reportedly seeking as much as 10 billion euros in bailout funds. That would see the German government take a large stake in the airline. Thyssen Krupp has warned the cash gains from the sale of its elevator unit will be eroded by the losses related to coronavirus. In a memo to staff seen by media outlets, the CEO said, quote, the financial leeway created by the sale will be much lower than originally anticipated. The German industrial giant sold its elevator unit to a private equity consortium in February for just over 17 billion euros. Reports last week indicated Thyssen would receive 1 billion euros in government aid to provide bridge support until the sale funds clear in June. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.